2 Kings chapter 6. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan. Let every man take a beam from there. And let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said to Elisha, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and they came to the Jordan. They cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. I want to preach with the help of the Lord on the building program miracle. God bless you. Please be seated. This is an unusual story in the Bible. Now, the Bible is filled with stories of the miraculous power of God. If I ask you to name some of the notable miracles in the Bible that have kind of locked in on you for years and years, you might talk about the creation story or Sarah having a baby at 90 years of age. You might talk about the plagues of Egypt, crossing the parted Red Sea, turning water or bringing water from a rock, raining manna from heaven, crossing the Jordan River at flood stage as it parted before Israel. You might remember the walls of Jericho falling down flat, the sun standing still, a talking donkey, Samson pulling down an entire temple, the meal barrel miracle in a famine, the sundial going backwards. A drought started and a drought stopped. There are at least 79 specific miracles recorded in the Old Testament of your Bible. At least 40 recorded miracles in the New Testament, many more if you take what happened at one time. The Bible is a book of miracles. If you were cataloging them according to greatness or memorability, I'm not sure you would put this miracle of the floating axe head on that list. I was talking to one avid Bible reader who told me they did not even really remember this story, even though they've read their Bible through many, many times. It's a story of a building program miracle. Now, in the days of Elisha, uh, there was a Bible college, a school of the prophets. And there were young ministers, aspiring ministers, that attended the school of the prophet. Enrollment was growing, and they were out of space in their Bible school. We don't know all the details, but I imagine them trying to install bunk beds, taking shifts in the dining hall, getting creative with the use of other facilities. 
And the reason I can envision this is I worked at a Bible college and church at the same time when the college was growing, the enrollment was booming, and we were out of room. We had recently built large new dormitories, but they were full. So we decided that we would take those rooms that typically house two students, and we would build bunk beds and put them in those same rooms so we could double our capacity in the Bible college. I vividly remember that at Jackson College of Ministries. So those bunk beds made everything else really crowded. From then on, when we had a problem with capacity, we would always just say, well, we can bunk them. We can bunk the desks in the classrooms. We can bunk the chairs in the dining hall. We can bunk the parking spaces in the parking lot. Of course, you couldn't do that, but our answer to every challenge of growth was let's just bunk them. So, you know, at Atlanta West, we're at a similar place here. And we're trying to figure out what we can do about that. The place, they said, is too small. That's what verse 1 says. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell is too small for us. It didn't used to be small, but it is now. And when I thought of this story, the Lord prompted this story to my mind this past Monday I thought about us. We're at a parking space. We're at a foyer space. Today, we're tied on sanctuary space. Thank God we have two services. We're out of restroom space. We're out of baptistry changing room space. We're tight on office space. Classrooms, we double and triple use our facilities all the time. Now, we've tried, but it would be difficult to bunk the foyer. You know what I'm saying? Like you all go out on this level and everybody else go out on that level. You just can't bunk the foyer. So the sons of the prophet were not building just to build. They weren't saying, I've got a great idea. Let's spend a lot of money. Let's just build this campus bigger. They were tight on space, running out of room. So they did an assessment and determined that the facilities were too small for their growing enrollment. They didn't think the solution was to inhibit growth. Let's turn a bunch of God-called men away from the school of the prophets. Let's just shrink this down to size so we can stay like we are without the pain of growth. That was not the solution. They had a plan, and they had a very simple and straightforward building plan. They went to Elisha, who was the dean or the president, if I could say it, of the Bible school, the school of the prophet. And they asked him in verse 2, please let us go to the Jordan. Let every man take a beam from there. Let us make there a place where we may dwell. So Elisha gave them a building permit and said, go. So here's what they said they're going to do. We're going to go down to the Jordan. They needed a reliable supply chain. I don't really know, and I've thought about this, how far was the Jordan River from that school of the prophets? They had to, you know, hew the logs there, cut them down, and carry them back to the Bible college. So we're going to go down to the river where there's an adequate supply of trees. Now, historically, later, the Jordan River area was not known for having tall trees. 
But they said, we're going to the Jordan where there's lots of trees. And then they said, every man, every student in the school of the prophets is going to go down. They're going to cut down their own tree. They're going to find a way, maybe team up. We're going to carry it back to the job site. And that's how we're going to grow our campus. We're all going to take our own responsibility. We're going to do our fair share. And we're going to take personal responsibility for getting that beam back to the job site. So I've thought about this a lot. I'm not sure how big or how heavy the beams were. Probably bigger than one guy could throw up on his shoulder. Unless it was you, of course. I'm sure you would not have needed any help. But in this story, it's fascinating to me that no one got to exempt themselves. To say, well, I'm, I'm a... I'm a prophet in the making, but I'm too spiritual to cut down trees. I'm going to prophesy a little bit. I'm going to study the Bible a little more. That's a good thing to do. But everybody, regardless of what class they were in, in the school of the prophets, all the majors, the theology majors, the music majors, everybody in the school agreed we're going to go down to the Jordan River chop down a tree, trim it up, make a beam, haul it back. We're going to expand the campus so we can grow. That was the goal. We're going to make a place where we can dwell. Now, the stories of Elisha in the Bible are typically miracle stories. But I like this story because it sheds a lot of light on the practical side of ministry. We're prophets in the making, but you still have to have a campus. We've got something great to do for God, but you still have to have a dormitory and a dining hall. You've still got to have a place to dwell so you can learn and grow, so you can multiply the ministries of Elisha and go out and do the work of God. We need more space. We're going to expand the build Everybody's going to get involved. We're all going to shoulder our own fair share of the load. And Elisha said, go. He gave them permission to all go down to the Jordan, cut down the trees, make the beams, bring them back, build the building. But then one of the sons of the prophets looked at Elisha and said, Elisha, we want you to go with us. Now, this is really not a spiritual endeavor, but nothing we do in the kingdom of God is only secular. It's all spiritual. It's all connected. It is all integrated. So if we're going to go down and do this physical labor, we want you, our mentor, our man of God, to go with us. And so they asked him to go, and Elisha the professor agreed to go. Now, he wasn't an architect. He wasn't a contractor. We don't know of anything that Elisha ever built. Before he was a prophet, he was not a builder. He was a farmer. When Elijah finds him, he's out plowing oxen. All I know is he burned all the plows, you know, so he's not really a builder. He's a burner, I guess. I don't know. But the students knew that even a physical building program 
needs spiritual oversight and involvement, so Elisha goes. Now, I've often said building programs and told other pastor friends, there's three things you need to know. It will typically cost more than you budgeted. It will typically take longer than you planned. And it will typically, you will find that there will be problems. Problems. And in building this school of the prophets, there was a problem. And it came in the form of a job site accident. There's a lot of activity going on in the grove of trees down by the Jordan River. I don't know how many students were in the school of the prophets at this particular time, but when Elijah was carried up in a whirlwind, the Bible said there were 50 sons of the prophets who were standing up on a hillside watching this transition from Elijah to Elisha. So I'm going to go with 50, at least 50 Bible college students, sons of the prophets, that are enrolled in this school of the prophets, and maybe they're all down there chopping down trees. Now, it makes me smile a little bit because I don't know that all of them came from a family of lumberjacks. Some were farmers. Some were probably, most were farmers. But they go to school. Now they've got to go cut down trees. Perhaps they had cut down a tree before, most likely. But I started thinking about my buddies in Bible college doing something like this. And every night, coming back to the dorm, sitting around, comparing blisters on our hands and talking about that horrible hard work that we did all day long and the sacrifice we were making for the kingdom of God. And I can just see those guys comparing war wounds at night. But they're down there. They've got their axes, and they are chopping down trees. Axes are swinging. Wood chips are flying. Trees are falling. Timber, shoo, trimming all the limbs to turn a tree into a beam, putting them on their shoulder, taking them back to the job site to build a bigger place for the school of the prophets. Now, I don't know how much you know about axes. I started to bring one today, but I was afraid it might really make somebody nervous. So I just have a simulated axe today. Axes are pretty simple. There's a handle, a stick. And there's an axe head, and it is attached. The axe head is attached to the axe handle. And you hope it's sharp, and you swing it with all your might, and you chop down trees. Now, I don't know exactly the, the design of those axes, but maybe they were tied with leather, or maybe like more modern axes, there was a, a split and there was a wedge that held the axe head in place, to the handle. Many of you are nodding because you know that's how it typically is. So I don't know. This guy is probably not very experienced, and, and I have a reason for saying that. So maybe he didn't inspect his axe very well that day. He's out there swinging for all he's worth, and he is chopped and chopped, and he, he rears back with his axe, and and when he brings it down into the tree, it is suddenly lighter than it has been. And he looks up just in time to see the iron axe head flying just past a fellow student's head, maybe, out into the Jordan River and plunk out of sight. The axe head 
flew off the handle. I've known some people who have done that before. An expression of speech that someone flew off the handle. The axe head landed in the Jordan River, disappeared. I like to imagine ripples of water where it went down. He's staring at that water. Then he looks down at his hand, still grasping. If he's right-handed, I would be like this. Grasping the axe handle and wondering what in the world just happened. Fellow students may be thanking God that they were out of the way far enough to not be struck by the flying iron as it flew into the Jordan River. Staring in disbelief, this was a job site accident, a setback. Have you ever had a sinking feeling when you were working really hard, doing your best, and something just went wrong? Maybe it was in ministry. You were sincere. You were hacking away doing what you could, and then you wonder why in the world did something happen that was a mishap. This was a building program setback. The axe head is lost. The tool is rendered useless. You can't chop down trees with an axe handle. And then to make matters worse, this is the reason I think he might have been a little bit inexperienced is when it happened, the first words out of his mouth to Elisha were, but mastery was borrowed. I put myself in that guy's place. I have been a poverty-stricken Bible college student. I cannot imagine what went through his mind when he thought about the lost axe head and his inability to replace it. If he could have afforded one, he would have bought his own but he had to borrow it for the building project and now it is gone and he's really in a tough spot because all he can think of is the axe head as it disappeared in the Jordan River and the sinking, sick feeling he had when it happened. Now they're trying to figure out what are we gonna do? Maybe we get the tallest guy in the college, hold him by his feet. Maybe he can dig around and find it. Maybe we'll get a dredge and we'll pull it with some rope and we hope we can kind of go along the bottom of the Jordan River and maybe, just maybe, we'll find where the axe head was and recover it. I can think of a creative student in the student body saying, no, no, let me tell you this, that's too risky. Let's just start a GoFundMe account. We'll raise the money and we'll buy another axe for the owner. This was a really bad place to be if you're that guy. So they go to Elisha and they tell him what happened. He says it's a borrowed axe head. And Elisha wants to know where, where did it go in? Have you ever dropped something in the water and tried to mark the spot? I have a lot of experience with what I'm talking about right now. I was raised around boats. When I was a little boy, my dad took me fishing with a friend, and I knocked his reel, rod and reel, over the side of the boat in the water. I forgot this story till right now. Mr. Woodward, he owned the dry cleaners. My dad and Uncle Jack went back the next day. They dove in, they drug around, and believe it or not, it was like the axe head. They found 
Mr. Woodward's, uh, Woodard's rod and reel in a canal in the Everglades. Thank you, Jesus. I could not have bought him another one. Where, where did it go in? And so they kind of pointed around and figured out as close as they could to where the axe head entered the Jordan River. Elisha does something that makes no sense at all. He doesn't deploy everybody to grab hands. Sometimes the Jordan is shallow. Sometimes in some places it's deep. But he goes and he takes a, a limb off a tree and he cuts a stick off the limb or the tree and he throws it in the Jordan River. Now, iron axe heads sink. Wooden sticks float. He throws the stick in the Jordan River. And I know they had faith in Elisha, but I just envisioned some of those Bible school students who might get cynical at times, rolling their eyes and like, well, that, a lot of good that's going to do. But in the middle of a building program accident, God worked a building program miracle. That iron axe head that was not buoyant, according to the laws of physics, it could not and would not float, but God defied the laws of gravity and of buoyancy, and that axe head floated up to the surface of the Jordan River, and Elisha said, go grab it, and that young man did. It was a building program miracle. And the story ends just like that. And the Bible moves on to something totally different. We don't know if they had a big party and celebrated the recovered axe head, but this is how God works. Sometimes in very unorthodox ways, you may have it all figured out how God should work in your life. And you may think because things have gone wrong in your life, when you're trying to do good, that God has abandoned you, or you've backslidden, or there's something wrong with you. But that setback is a setup for God to do something great in your life, to show himself strong, to perform a miracle in your life. Amen. The Bible is clear about how God works in unorthodox ways. Israel finds water. They're so happy and they taste it, but it is bitter. And Moses cuts down a tree and throws it in the water and the bitter waters become sweet. There's a plague and many people are bitten by fiery serpents. And so God says, make a brass serpent and hold it up on a pole, a pole and whoever looks will live. That's an unorthodox way to heal. There's a, a king with a boil, and the prophet says, put a lump of figs, and he'll be healed. There's a pot of stew that is poisonous. They've gathered gourds that were poisonous, and the prophet throws in a handful of meal, and that pot of stew is healed and made whole, and they could eat it. I don't understand why God chose a handful of meal to heal a pot of poisonous stew, but I can tell you that God often works in mysterious ways, in unorthodox ways, to show us that the foolish person don't be foolish in your own eyes, but trust in the Lord and believe God. 
Verse 6, just read it. So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place and he cut off a stick and threw it in there and he made the iron float. Amen. I thank God for this amazing miracle. Now miracles occur when God suspends the laws of nature. God made this natural world. He created the laws of physics. He created gravity and inertia and all the rest of them. And it makes the earth a habitable place because of the natural laws that God instituted at creation. But there are times we are facing an impossibility and God suspends the laws of nature. The doctor said it is incurable, but God said there's a cure. The relationship seems irretrievably broken, but God says there's reconciliation. Somebody says that you're addicted forever, but God brings deliverance and sets you free. There is nothing that God cannot do. A miracle can happen in your life when God suspends the laws of nature. Praise God. He did it for them. He'll do it for you. Amen. The Lord said through Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord. You're not. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? You see, God, who made the axe head swim, has the power to change the nature of the situation that you are facing. I cannot tell you how that iron axe head floated. I can just tell you that it did. And I can't tell you how God is going to guide us as a church into the future, but I can tell you he will. I can't tell you how God is going to come through for you, but I can just tell you that he will have Faith in God, amen. But it will not happen if you're complacent and stand still like the lepers. You've got to make up your mind. I refuse to sit here till I die. All the options look bleak, but I'm going to believe God and do something. You can stay in the boat if you want to, but if you'll get out of the boat, you may walk on water. You never know what God will do for you if you will believe him. A building program miracle. Praise God. In case you're behind, let me catch you up. This past Wednesday, January 25th, in our annual business meeting, we voted to proceed with phase one of the proposed building program with a budget of $7 million dollars. And we really believe it will not cost more for lots of reasons, but we'll see. It was a momentous occasion. An overwhelming show of support in that secret ballot vote that we planned to do so everyone could vote the way they felt. That motion passed by a 98% vote of our voting members who were present. And then... When I called for the motion, you know, before we voted, I, uh, I had thought someone mentioned to me, what if Sister Louise Harper, the founding member of our church, what if she made the motion? 
So I talked to Sister Harper to make sure she was for this and that there was no coercion there. She was more nervous about having to say something publicly than how she felt about the future. And you may not remember this or may not have ever heard this, but this church started in the basement of the home of Merle and Louise Harper. The Bible says, despise not the day of small things or of small beginnings that will not stay small. So I thought it was significant to invite Sister Harper to make that motion. She agreed she would. And when she said, I so move, it was an incredible moment in our church that a 99-year-old saint would say, I may not be around to, to live in this building a long time. I hope she is. She probably will outlive most of us, by the way. But I believe in the next generation. Sister Helen Steinman was over here just waving away. She confessed that she's 89 years old. She seconded the motion. Many of you wanted to. I thought it was significant. By the way, lots of ladies in the minutes this year, you'll hear that read next year. They were both not just seconding emotion, but seconding the future, saying, we're like Caleb. Give me this mountain. We believe in the future. We are well able to take this land. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat> There's much work to be done. But it has already begun. But until Wednesday, our work was preliminary, was necessary, contingent on the vote of the church. As I mentioned, we will engage in these processes immediately. We already are ready to move forward. There are plans to be completed. There are permissions and permits to be granted. There are permits to be pulled. There are contractors to be vetted. There are hundreds of decisions to be made, and there are millions of dollars to be raised. And I can tell you, not because I'm prophesying this, but because I just know there will be problems. I'm not hoping that something will fly off the handle, but I just live long enough to know that something will not be perfect. I don't fear the problems. Like Job said, the thing I so greatly feared has come upon me. I've just learned that there will always be construction site setbacks. But I've also learned that there will always be building program miracles. That God will show up in our mistake, in our setback, in our challenges. God will show up and he will do the impossible humanly. But nothing is impossible for God. So when it happens, don't be afraid. Not a sign that you're out of the will of God. Not an indicator that there's sin in the camp. The sunken axe head is just an opportunity for a miracle. I'm willing to endure the problem to get to the miracle. <clears throat> Amen. This church was built on miracles. This campus was built on miracles. Pre-1986, getting this land was a miracle. 
Buying the land on the corner was another miracle. Paying the bills in the early ages, stages of the mortgage, even after I came, miracle after miracle. But then there's a really amazing miracle story that I remembered and I verified. The men were here. The ladies were here. They were going to pour concrete that day. Everything was in place. But there was a huge rainstorm that was headed for this area that was going to inundate this job site with rain. But people of faith started praying. And the men and women who were gathered here looked up in the sky. I'm not sure if it was coming from the west as much of our weather does. But they looked in the sky and they watched the clouds part and literally go around this job site and they poured concrete and they kept going because back then God did a building program miracle. And if he did it before, he will do it again. We're not all building a building. And buildings are not our primary mission. It is building people, building lives. And I want to bring this very personally to you today. Because many of you have made commitments, some this year, that you want to make room for God in your life. That you're going to carve out time for more capacity for God. You've made up your mind that you're not content to stay spiritually small or spiritually as you were. So you've started cutting down some trees of consecration. You started getting involved in trying to be better than you were last year. But I just have felt in my spirit that some of you have run up against some things that you did not anticipate. You never dreamed the axe head would fly off the handle and into the river. And you've looked at your dream. You've looked at your plan. And you wonder what in the world went wrong. You've questioned yourself. You've wondered if you're doing the right thing or if you're in the will of God. But I have come here on this Sunday to tell you that you're not out of the will of God. That you're not doing the wrong thing. That God is ready to perform a miracle in your life. And what Satan has tried to convince you is just a setback and this is not right and it's not going to work for you. God wants you to know today that he loves you and he sees your effort and he knows the mistake or the setback and he's going to get you through it and you're going to be better than you were before you started. And when it is done, God alone will get the glory and no person will glory in his presence. And we will know that Jesus Christ showed up and he did it for us. And if you expect that, would you stand to your feet? How would you lift your voice to the Lord? How would you say, Jesus, count me in. I want to be in your will.